Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 143. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. And if you haven't heard by now, we crossed 1 million downloads and just had a fun giveaway. Hopefully you took part in it. Maybe you won. I'd love to hear if you did win. This week, we are continuing our journey through Next Step Test Prep Full Length 10 We are winding down. We're almost done. Hopefully you have followed along through this whole full length and what you have learned here will help your score in the end. So hopefully this will help you continue to improve your psych section. Clara, back for some more MCAT podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. How about you? I'm excited. We're we're wrapping up (laughs) full length 10 here, getting close. I I can smell that void button. Uh, getting closer and closer. <laughs> like I'm no. definitely voiding my score as we went through this. Oh, don't don't do it. Don't <laughs> void your score unless something goes horribly wrong. That I is, don't. That's good don't advice. Think we're there. Yeah, yeah. That's very good advice. It's something that that Brian and I back when when Brian was with me here on the MCAT podcast, we talked about when to void your score, and it literally was like if if something disastrous happens, then void. If not, don't trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I remember the first time I took the MCAT, I thought I did horrible and I wanted to void my score. And it's, it's just this feeling that you get uh, means nothing about whether you actually did well or not. Yeah. So. And how well did you do? Them. Like a 98th <laughs> percentile? That was 99th. Okay. Uh, but every <laughs> everyone feels it, you know, this, this horror at, oh my God, I messed it up. But if you don't know for a fact, then don't void it. 99th percentile you thought about voiding that's funny not <laughs> yeah. thought about voiding but uh um thought you did horrible that's pretty funny anyway <laughs> uh what do we have in store for us today oh we've got a fun passage um this one's about some things i don't i don't think we talked a lot about yet but like stress and emotion and the theories of emotion so stuff that comes up all the time all right um sounds good let's go ahead and we'll jump into it again if you want to follow along with uh, this passage, you can follow along in the handout, which you can find at mcatpodcast.com. Find the show notes for the episode today, and you can, you can download and read along with us. All right. Passage 8. 
Acute stress is associated with altered cognitive functioning, in particular with respect to decision-making. Under stress, individuals exhibit less flexible cognitive processing together with altered risk and feedback processing. Collectively, these effects suggest that stress taxes executive functions, and thus they point to the potential impact of stress on the regulation and monitoring of decision processes. Indeed, decision is not only about selecting the right option. It's also about assessing its appropriateness relative to the circumstances, that is, whether one can be confident or not about one's action. Researchers conducted a study on the impact of stress on the sensitivity of confidence judgments, also termed metacognitive accuracy. The stress response consists of a cascade of mechanisms governed by the hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical, or HPA, axis, leading notably to the release of cortisol and catecholamines. Within the brain, these hormones are known to target specifically the prefrontal cortex, or PFC, thereby altering higher cognitive functions. Of considerable interest regarding metacognition, it's been proposed that one of the early effects of acute stress is to dampen activity in regions subserving endogenous attention in favor of orienting resources to vigilance and action, that is, to exogenous attention. In the experiment, high, medium, and low responders to stress were first identified according to the concentration of cortisol in saliva at the peak of hormonal response to interpersonal stress. Twelve months later, participants performed a perceptual decision task with confidence judgments. Researchers operationalized metacognitive sensitivity as the extent to which confidence judgments discriminated correct and incorrect responses. They predicted that high responders should have lower scores on this measure. However, mean confidence did not differ across stress groups. P was greater than 0.91, meaning first that participants were well calibrated in view of their average performance of 83%, and second that stress reactivity did not translate into underconfidence or overconfidence. <laughs> oh, um, I'm stressed out just reading this passage <laughs> or listening a lot of to words. read it. Yeah, uh, I I always get confused when it comes to uh, when it comes to these types of paragraphs where they they talk about like high, medium, low, and under and over, and and so you're like picturing all of these things and all these arrows going up and down and all around. Do you have any? sort of tips on how to prevent a student like myself from from getting super confused when it's a lot of opposite types of wording? Oh, definitely. Um yeah, this is that's a great question and it it depends on the context in which these words are used. Um so we see a couple different examples here. Um for one, we see that when they're talking about this experiment, um, let's see. Oh, yeah. They say in the, in the experiment, high, medium and low responders to stress were identified. So what I would do there when they're just listing out these groups, even though the terms can be opposites like high versus low and then versus medium. Uh, still, I would just highlight those because that's like a great example where they're telling us uh, our experimental groups in the study. Uh, the only time I would do something other than highlighting for like words like high, low, um, best, worst, that sort of thing, is um, if they actually talk about some sort of correlation or causation, uh, especially in like bio passages, because this is actually one of our only the only times we recommend taking notes, because uh, notes are, are sort of unwieldy on the current MCAT. But let's say you see a passage that says, "Oh, high at cortisol activity 
is correlated to higher scores on this random test or something like that. Uh, if you're the kind of person who gets confused and overwhelmed by a lot of language like that, you can totally jot down high cortisol equals high test scores or something. Uh, it's relatively quick, and that way you actually have documentation of those correlation or causations. Okay. Yeah. But. All right. <laughs> so question 40. Cortisol inhibits the release of hormones that act earlier in the HPA axis. This type of regulation is known as A, positive feedback, B, negative feedback, C, allosteric regulation, or D, paracrine regulation. Oh, so HPA uh, just stands out back in the second paragraph, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical axis. Um, and so cortisol inhibits the release of hormones that act earlier in the axis. Uh, and so I think the key thing to know here with the HPA axis is right after it's defined, it's saying, I think potentially, that the axis releases cortisol. Uh, and so this axis, the, the question is saying it inhibits the release of hormones that act earlier in the axis, but cortisol is one of the things that comes out through the axis. Um, and so that sounds like negative feedback to me to say, hey, I'm, I'm turning you off. Like, I don't need more of you. I'm going to turn you off. So that would be negative feedback to me, which would be B. Uh, allosteric regulation, paracrine regulation. I don't remember what the heck those mean, and I don't think that plays a role here. Um, and so I'm left with A or B, and, and B sounds more correct here. B is correct. Okay. Great. Yeah, and this one it really is that simple, right? Because negative feedback, uh, the vast majority of processes that of feedback processes that you're going to see on the MCAT are going to be negative feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is just a classic example where cortisol is the product of this pathway, and whenever a product or something like relatively downstream in a pathway um, basically feeds back on earlier. Um, compounds that acted in this pathway and then and acts essentially to decrease its own production, uh, that's classic negative feedback. So that's what's happening here. And that, that's what keeps uh, our cortisol from going like completely out of control mm -hmm. uh, because it inhibits its own release. I, I think a, a trap here for me specifically, obviously I had a little bit of time to look at it and go back to that second paragraph. I think a lot of students will be like, oh crap, I don't remember what HPA access is. And so then they'll they'll start guessing and, and not trusting the, their knowledge and the fact that the information is there to say, oh, the HPA access does involve the release of cortisol and catecholamines. Therefore, if something that it's releasing is causing it to inhibit more release, then, then that's exactly what it is. Totally. Yeah, don't get caught up in words that might be a little bit less familiar or words that tie back to the passage, um, it's very, very common for them to just use. It's a classic example of something that you should already know about, and they're just throwing in a couple words that are relevant to the passage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, perfect. Okay. All right. Uh, next one is number 41. Um, this is a Roman numeral question. Uh, so it says... When exposing subjects to a stressful stimulus, researchers obse observed that they recorded a physiological response in the subjects before the subjects reacted in any other way. This is consistent with which theory or theories of emotion? Roman numeral one is the James Lange theory. 
Roman numeral two is Canon Bard. Roman numeral three is Schachter Singer. So those are all theories of emotion. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer choices are one only, two only, one and two only, (laughs) or one and three only. Oh, right. Right. Um, So three of the question choices. So, so I'm going to start off this with, I have no clue what these theories of emotions are. Uh, And so I'm going to go down this path of, well, three of the answer choices have one in them. So I'm going to increase my chances, potentially 75% chance that uh, (laughs) one is included. So James Lange uh, is included. And so then the question is, do I want to guess if it's alone uh, or if it's with Cannon Bird or if it's with Schechter Singer? Uh, and I would probably just throw a guess in there and move on quickly um, to either A, C, or D. And I would probably choose C because C is obviously the question that you're supposed to answer all the time if you don't know. And then I'd move on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, they're actually, C is not the right answer. So, (laughs) sorry about that. Um, uh, D is the correct answer here. Okay. So, it was actually James Lange and uh, Schachter Singer. Um, And so, you're kind of out of luck, like like you mentioned, if you don't know what these theories are. So, you're sort of forced to guess then. Uh, But if you know just even a little bit about them, you can get pretty far. um, Because the key with theories of emotion is that the James Lange theory and the Schachter-Singer theory are really similar. Um, basically, James Lange, James Lange theory says that um, what happens first is a physiological response. So let's say you see something terrifying, like you see a bear in the woods or something. Uh, what will happen first is there will be a physiological response, like your heart rate will increase. And then what will happen second is you'll perceive some sort of emotional response, like fear. Uh, and James Lange and Schachter Singer actually both say that exactly the same. Uh, the only difference is Schachter Singer also accounts for the possibility that you can consciously interpret what you're seeing. So like if you saw, um, oh, someone surprising you for your birthday or something, you might not interpret it the same way as if you saw a bear. So the key takeaway is just that one and three typically go together. So here, um, the statement, oh, they, they recorded this physiological response first before anything else happened. It's totally consistent with James Lange, and so it's probably totally consistent with Schachter Singer, and one and three is our answer. Okay, so key takeaway, James Lange and Schachter Singer are similar. Absolutely, and Cannon Bard is, is a different theory, um, so it's probably the odd man out. Okay, here. I like it. So good little yeah. tie in there. All right, question 42. After going through boot camp in the military, Alice reported to her family members that boot camp was stressful, but was a valuable experience because it taught her that she was capable of accomplishing more than she had thought. What concept best describes this type of stress? A, adaptive stress, B, cognitive stress, C, distress, or D, eustress? Who? Um, <laughs> I, so obviously you have to know the type of stress uh, so something else to throw onto your list of of things to know. Uh, the only one here that stands out without remembering all of these uh, different types of stress, the only one here that just kind of logically makes sense based on the words is adaptive stress. And so I would go with A and and move on. Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, so adaptive stress is really tempting if you don't know what these terms refer to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the actual answer here is D. Uh, so D is use stress. Oh, that was my which, second choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, we can, we can kind of eliminate some of these, but yeah, if you basically, you have to know that C, which is distress. Um, that's what we commonly think of as like, oh, it's bad stress, right? Yep. It's like stress that, yeah, that's, that's damaging over time to your health. Um, whereas you stress, uh, not all students have heard that word before, but it's very MCAT relevant and it refers to productive stress. So stress that, yeah, is usually chronic, it resolves more quickly and it, it can be sort of a learning experience in a way. So. Okay. And adaptive stress isn't really a thing. Um, adapt- <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was what, what people might be wondering. Um, but yeah, adaptive stress is, uh, they're sort of conflating it because you can have adaptive coping mechanisms that are like, oh, how, how are you going to cope with, with your troubles or that sort mm. of thing? But the stress you should know for the MCAT is distress versus eustress. Okay. And what about cognitive stress? Is that anything? Or is that a made-up no. one too? It's, it's also pretty much made up. They're, they're confusing yeah. like relatively similar areas, but it's not a type of stress that you need to know. Okay. So distress versus eustress. So dis, bad, you, potentially good. Totally. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. 43. All right. Question 43, a subsequent study replicated the methodology of the research described in the passage with the following exceptions. They increased the sample size by a factor of four, performed both parts of the experiment on the same day, and used a different perceptual decision-making task. They found small but significant differences, with P being less than 0.05, in metacognitive accuracy depending on stress response. Which of the following is not a reasonable explanation of the discrepancy between these two studies? A says the sample size of the first study was too small to detect a small but significant difference in performance. B says hormonal response profiles to stress are short-lived and changeable, meaning that by waiting for 12 months to perform the second half of the study, the groups of high, medium, and low responders in the first study were no longer valid. C, the sample size of the first study was too small to eliminate the effect of chance. And finally, D, the perceptual decision-making task was more stress-inducing in the second study than in the first study. Oh, <laughs> so what? this going back to psychosocial, you really need to understand uh, how research is put together, how studies are put together, and, and understand those differences. Definitely. Uh, all right. so. They increased the sample size, performed both parts on the same day instead of 12 months apart. They used a different perceptual decision-making task, which could be interesting. Uh, A small but significant differences in accuracy depending on stress response. Hmm. Okay. So which one is not a reasonable explanation? So not is always that key one. Uh, So... Three of them are a reasonable explanation. Which one of them is not? Um, Okay, so sample size was too small to detect a small but significant difference in performance. Um, So I just want to go back up to the, the research that originally was done. They predicted that high responders should have lower scores on the measure. However, mean confidence did not differ across the stress groups. So there was no difference in the original one and then in in this subsequent 
test, they did find subsequent differences. Okay. All right. Now I'm on, on, on board here. So the sample size could, in theory, detect a small but significant difference, which is what they found. So I'm going to say that is a reasonable explanation. I'm going to cross that one off. Uh, hormonal response profile distress are short-lived and changeable. Waiting 12 months to perform the second half of the study uh, were no longer valid. Uh, I think that's reasonable, potentially, so I may cross that one off. Uh, the sample size of the first study was too small to eliminate the effect of chance. Um, I'm not sure what chance has to do with that. So that's a questionable one. And then D, the perceptual decision-making task was more stress-inducing in the second study than in the first study. And so they don't tell us what the decision-making task was. And so it could be. Uh, And so for me, I'm left with C as the one that's like uh, the, the eliminate the effect of chance. And it's probably wrong because there's probably some super specific definition of chance that I don't remember and it's going to relate here. But I'm going to choose C because the other ones seem like they could be reasonable explanations. Oh, you're totally right. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> no, no, there's no fancy definition of chance. Although if you get into stats, it can get a little crazy. But but it doesn't even matter here. So that, that was awesome. Um, the, the key is the word eliminate where... The idea, if we just think of chance how we typically think of it, like like random, you know, get it randomly getting certain participants in certain groups or that sort of thing, um, we can never eliminate the effect of chance. We can just minimize it. Mm. So, so yeah. C, yeah, C is just a false statement. It doesn't even matter. Um, the sample size of the second study couldn't eliminate the effect of chance either because it's just not something you can do. So it's one of those where always be on the lookout for those extreme words and eliminate is an an extreme word. Exactly. Exactly. Because we're thinking, oh, three of these are reasonable. One is not reasonable. And actually, C is the only one that is extreme. So it, it makes some sense that C is the only one that's not reasonable. Uh, um, yeah. If only the MCAT as a whole were that easy, be like, where, where are the extreme words? That's the answer. Move on. I got a 99th percentile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> If only, but, mm. but, you know, even, um, even students who know, oh, like look for extreme words, they can easily get messed up by this question. Cause it's so long. There's so many different choices that mm-hmm. have nothing to do with each other that we have to evaluate. Okay. Any of the, the answers that are there that may trick students up? Totally. Uh, so, so a talks about the sample size and I think we all, usually have a pretty good idea um, even by the beginning of our prep that a bigger sample size is better. So um, that that's what is the case here. The sample size of the first study was smaller. They tell us that the second study increased by a factor of four and that's enough to say, okay, that's probably why or that could be a contributing factor to why the second study got a, a meaningful result. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I think trips a lot of people up is B though with um, – these hormonal response profiles to stress because it's just a long answer choice. And so it's easy to think, oh, there's something in it that that could make it wrong. Um, But it's totally true. We often have to measure um, hormone, do like panels, um, that sort of thing. Like endocrinologists will have to measure hormones over like a six hour period Mm -hmm. um, because they totally change um, depending on the time of day. And they certainly change significantly over 12 months. Yeah. Um, So that's perfect. 
And then otherwise, yeah, I mean, your reasoning was perfect for D. They didn't tell us anything about these tasks. So for all we know, it could be more stressful yeah. in the second study. All right. So there you have it. Some more psychos for you. Hopefully this one was helpful. You took some good tidbits away. If you are looking at full-length exams for the MCAT, remember, it's one of the best ways to study for the MCAT, not putting your your head down in a book and reading content over and over and over again. You need to do full-length exams. You need to sit there for that full seven and a half, eight hours. Make sure your, your bottom end knows how to sit for that long and is comfortable sitting for that long, and you have the stamina to do it. Go check out Next Step Test Prep. They have 10 full-length exams for the new MCAT that will help you get the score that you need to get into the school that you want to. Use the promo code MCATPOD, that's all capital letters, M-C-A-T-P-O-D, to save 10% off of any of their full-length exam packages. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time. We're covering some more Next Step Test Prep Full-Length 10 with our third set of discretes. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT Podcast. 